Our scripture reading this morning is in Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 14 to 41. That's on page 910 if you're using a pew Bible. It says, verse 14, I hear pages. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. Just before I begin, I want to welcome Blake and Nikki back. I'm sure you guys are tired, jet lag. We prayed for you. We look forward to hearing your report. Uh, also, this is the last Sunday we'll see Miranda for a while, Jason's fiance. Make sure you get to know her and, and say hi to her. We've so enjoyed her presence. Jonathan and Tina have been blessed to have her staying at their home. She's a dear, dear sister in Christ. We'll miss you. This morning, I'm going to begin a brief three-part sermon series called Grow, Making, Maturing, and Multiplying Disciples of Jesus Christ. Our intent in this brief series will be to open up more fully the second half of our mission statement. We had cards passed out just a few moments ago, and I'd like to ask you if you have one, just please to turn to the, the side where the mission statement itself is found. Um, and if you will, um, resist the temptation to be studying the other half during the sermon. It's just simply the schedule, which begins in June. Actually, the children's ministry is going to begin in July because... Uh, Pastor Mark needs a little more time to put that, that team of 18 people together. But uh, in June, uh, we will begin our Sunday evening, first Sunday, Lord's Supper, second and fourth Sundays, community groups. Third Sunday, we're encouraging an evangelistic dinner for those who'd be willing to open their home, invite unconverted people. And fifth Sunday, a fellowship dinner here, which we haven't had in years because we haven't had room for it. So... That's all that the second half is about. Um, but as you look at the first half here, I want you to notice that we have, first of all, um, our identity. It's in the first part of our mission statement. We exist to be. That's, that's the key word. This is, this is who we are. This is what we want to be. This is our identity. We exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission. That's our identity. But the second half of the statement focuses on our purpose. That is, what, what are we about? What has God called us to do? And the answer is, with regard to being on mission, our, our calling is to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. It's, it's really quite simple. Make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we explain these three aspects of our mission... In these next three sermons, we will be working from this passage, which was just read to you by Jason, found in Acts chapter 2. Luke was the inspired historian, and as we look at this, we are going to see how disciples are made, how they're matured, and how they're multiplied. What God created in Jerusalem is really what he calls every church to be. 
A biblical church is to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers. But not just worshipers, worshipers on mission. Not just people on mission, but worshipers on mission. That's what God has called every church to be. And my privilege this morning is to focus on what it means to make disciples and to see how God wants us to do that, how he wants that done. How does he want that done? Well, he wants that done the old-fashioned way. He wants that done through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the calling of sinners to faith and repentance and baptism. I hope you say, wait a minute, did you add baptism? I did. And later I will explain what I mean by that. That's how God wants us to make disciples. Now just a word about the structure of Acts chapter 2. In verse 41, which Jason just read for us, we see that 3,000 people were converted. They became disciples. And they were baptized into the membership of the first church of Jerusalem. Next week and the following week, Pastor Jonathan is going to take us further into this passage and show us how they're matured and how they're multiplied. But isn't verse 41 really amazing? I mean, don't just read that and let that just sort of float in and out of your mind quickly. Verse 41 tells us that 3,000 people were radically converted and baptized and joined a church. And don't forget who they were. These were some of the people in perhaps large numbers, hundreds if not thousands, who only a few weeks prior were screaming out in a violent hatred of Christ, crucify him, crucify him. And the irony is that on this amazing day, this is such a significant day, all of history has been moving toward this day. The Old Testament predicted that a day would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a unique and powerful way in order to inaugurate the Messianic kingdom. Judaism was going to pass away. The temple was going to be destroyed. God is going to create a new Israel made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And the irony is that the very person they hated and wanted to be crucified is the one who is pouring out the Holy Spirit on them so that they can be saved. This is what's amazing. And I want you to be struck with awe as we think about 30 or about 3,000 people being saved under the anointed blessing of one relatively short sermon. How did that happen? Well, God blessed the sermon that Peter preached on that day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. He abundantly blessed it. The sermon itself starts in verse 14, and then it concludes in verse 36. But how did Peter get 3,000 people to come out and hear him? I wish we could do that. He didn't. The Holy Spirit got 3,000 people to come out and hear him. 
And by creating a supernatural phenomenon, a supernatural event, they came. What he did was he created a mysterious, deafening, eerie, sound like wind. He didn't create wind. You might think that wind came. Wind didn't come. Wind is a sign of the Spirit. It was the sound of wind that came. And the sound was rushing, our text says. Another translation says it was a roaring wind. Another one speaks of it as a violent wind. It was tornadic. It started in a house where probably the 120 were gathered, that small band of true believers in Jerusalem. And then it drew so much attention that they went out into the public. Furthermore, something looking like tongues, tongues as if they were on fire. There was no real fire. They looked as though they were on fire, and fire is a symbol of God's holy presence as well. And they saw these tongues resting upon the heads of probably the 120. And that sound and that sight brought a multitude of people together. Now, who were these people who gathered? Well, we're told that they were devout Jews in verse 5. They were devout Jews who were temporarily in Jerusalem for the feasts. And when they heard that wind, they gathered. And then the amazing thing is they began to hear these people from at least 15 different regions of the Roman world. They began to hear people talking in their language who didn't know their language. They were Galileans and they said, what is this? Aren't these men Galileans? And yet they're speaking in our tongue. So the tongues of this chapter are clearly languages, known languages. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that were happening today? I've never heard of that. How that would solve the problems for the Baldwins when they go to Serbia. God just gives them the gift of being able to speak Serbian. But that gift came so that the gospel could be preached. What was it they were hearing? They were hearing about the mighty works of God, according to verse 11. And what was the reaction of the people? Well, it was one of confusion and one of bewilderment. And in the case of some, of disdain. They mocked them. They said, these people are drunk. And Peter gets their attention in verse 14, and he begins to explain what really happens. And the explanation becomes a sermon. A sermon with exhortation and a sermon that ended with very, very helpful application. The explanation was very simple. You you heard it. Again, Jason read it. He's saying to the people, they're not drunk. Are you kidding? Really? At 9 o'clock in the morning? Does being drunk help you to speak an actual language from another country? It may cause you to speak something that is slurred and ununderstood. But it doesn't cause you to speak a foreign language. He says, that's ridiculous. Let me tell you what's happening, says Peter. 
This experience that you are witnessing is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because in the Old Testament, God promised that that messianic kingdom would be inaugurated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was a promise from God that he was going to give to his son so that he might pour it out. And Peter just simply says, this is the fulfillment specifically of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. By the way, just a quick observation, because it has a little bearing on what we're going to be thinking about tonight. You notice that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon men and women, and both men and women prophesied. And I'm only pointing out that if it was intrinsically wrong for a woman to be doing that at the inauguration of the first church, then I don't think God would have given that gift to those women. The reason it was okay, as we will see, is because it wasn't a violation of what Paul clearly teaches in 1 Timothy 2, namely that women are not to exercise authority over men or to teach men. Prophesying is not teaching. It's just being a vehicle of revelation. Praying is not teaching. Praying is a redemptive privilege. That's why he poured it out on his sons and his daughters. But that's not my main burden this morning. So Peter explains, and then the explanation just goes into a wonderful exhortation starting in verse 22. So I want to get to that quickly. This is the heart of it. And I want you to realize, even though we're not going to read it again, this was a long passage for Jason to read for us. But I'm going to just point out in several verses how this, this sermon, and particularly the, the exhortation part of the sermon, is all revolving around Christ. First of all, I want you to appreciate, however, that the general purpose of what's going to happen now in verses 22 and following is this. Peter wants the hearers to know that the one whom they had rejected and crucified was actually their Messiah. And furthermore, that their Messiah was not dead, but that their Messiah had been raised from the dead by God and exalted to a throne at the right hand of God and declared to be Lord and Christ Messiah by God and was going to remain at the right hand of God the Father until all of his enemies, which they were, would be made his footstool. Peter really, really, really wants to sober these people. In a sense, he's saying, you have no idea what you did. You crucified the Messiah, but he's reigning. And he's a Lord. And he's coming back. But you can be saved. That's really the heart of the sermon. So let me just show you how in verse 22, the word attested is used. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. What does that mean, attested? It means he was accredited. It means he was affirmed. It means he was divinely endorsed. They had no reason to believe he was a charlatan. 
This man is obviously from God. Look what he's doing. He's raising the dead. Peter also speaks of him as having been delivered in verse 23. Delivered by God's sovereign plan. And yet in that same verse, verse 23, he says, The one who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here is one of those verses of Scripture that brings together divine sovereignty and human responsibility in a way that cannot be fully understood, but in a way that cannot be denied. God planned the crucifixion of Jesus. They were responsible for their sin. And then in verse 24... He speaks of him being raised. God raised him up. He says the same thing again in verse 28. And then in verse 30, if you'll notice, it says that one was going to be set on David's throne. We don't have time to go back to this wonderful prophecy, but God spoke to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 13. He said, David, someday I'm going to raise someone up out of your loins, And I'm going to put him on your throne, the throne of David. And guess what? He will reign forever, as we just sang. He is going, he's not going to die. He is going to be the ultimate king. And in fact, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, this is spoken of in terms of David will reign. David will sit. How can King David who was buried, according to Peter. In fact, his tomb was very near where they were all gathering. How's he ever going to become a king again? Is God really going to raise the original David from the dead and make him a king? No! The original David was always designed by God to symbolize the ultimate David, just as the first Adam was followed by a second Adam. And Moses was followed by the ultimate deliverer. And Aaron was followed by the ultimate priest. And King David is followed by the ultimate king. And so he received that prophecy, and it was out of that sense of prophetic knowledge that he wrote Psalm 16, which spoke of his resurrection. And so Peter is saying, not only has he been attested and delivered and crucified and raised, he's been enthroned, and he's been exalted. And if you will look at verse 36, it says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And as I pointed out earlier, he says to them in verse 20 or 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father this, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's Peter's way of saying, the one you killed has caused this phenomenon to happen. And if their brains were working at all, and obviously they were, but what's more significant is that their brains were being influenced by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But even if the Holy Spirit weren't working at all, one would think if their brains were working at all, they would say, we're in trouble. This one that we crucified was indeed the Messiah. He's been raised. He's been enthroned. He's coming back. His enemies are all going to become his footstool. 
He's the cause of this phenomenon that is so bewildering to us. But when you take just that logical thought process and find it, shall we say, electrified by the Holy Spirit in terms of conviction, what would you expect to happen in the minds and the hearts of these people? I'll tell you what, what happened in verse 37. And actually, this is where the the sermon becomes applied. So we see the first part of the sermon was an explanation. This is Joel chapter 2, men of Israel. The sermon becomes an exhortation. You are in trouble because the one you crucified is the Messiah. And they're so deeply moved that very possibly they actually interrupted the sermon. It's possible that the sermon is over with verse 36. But it's also very likely that it wasn't. Because it seems that they interrupted him. And it says, now when they heard this, the last words. And notice, not once, but two times, Peter says, you crucified him. You crucified him. You find it first back in verse 23. You crucified and killed him. And then you find it again at the end of verse 36. You crucified him. You crucified him. They are overcome with deep fear and conviction. And they interrupt his sermon. And they say, Peter and the rest of you disciples, you the other eleven, what shall we do? Boy, that's what a pastor wants to happen in the middle of his sermon. What a holy interruption that would be. And sometimes in revival, that very thing has happened. But they're cut to the heart. Notice that expression in verse 37. They're cut to the heart. And they cry out. And Peter has an answer for them. And he tells them what they must do is repent and be baptized. Now, notice the rest of verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So if I put it this way, this is your little quiz. According to verse 38, what did they have to do in order to obtain forgiveness of their sins? You would say, They had to repent and be baptized. And you're absolutely right. But what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind born out of a broken heart for a sense of sinfulness which determines to turn from the way of sin to the way of holiness and especially to the Lord Jesus Christ who died to pay for those sins. That's what repentance is. It's godly sorrow. And by the way, if you haven't already thought about this, that's how disciples are made. That's what this sermon is about. God has called us to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission, and our mission is to make disciples. How do we make disciples? The old-fashioned way. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We help sinners see their predicament before a holy and a just God. We help them see that a day is coming when he, whom they have not trusted in yet, will come back and judge the world. But that now, in the day of grace, there's an opportunity for forgiveness because he died in the place of sinners. And when we see the slightest level of conviction and concern on the part of our hearers, we say to them, here's what you do. You must repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance is a change of mind. It's godly sorrow. It's turning away. It is, as the Puritans used to put it, a vomiting of the soul. It's hating sin, not because of the mere consequences that it's going to bring. Anybody can hate the consequences of sin. Every criminal hates the consequences of sin. But rarely do we find a criminal who hates the sin itself. But true repentance is a hating of the sin because of how heinous it is, how contrary it is to the nature of God and to the will of God. And so Peter says, you must repent. And then he uses an interesting word in verse 39. And I'm going to come back to the, the comment about baptism in a minute. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not leaving that. I'm just bearing that for a moment. He says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There's a ton of theology in that verse. It's clearly for all who will repent. But what is the promise? Well, I think the promise concerns the forgiveness of sins. He just finished saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. For the promise, the promise of salvation, and by the way, he said, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that. Again, that's in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit isn't tongues. Not in this context. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is the new birth. It's the presence of God living within us, making our bodies a temple. And Peter is saying, here is the promise. Repent of your sins and you will be forgiven and you will receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Who's this promise for, Peter? It's for you. It's for your children. It's for as all that are afar off. Probably there he's referring to the Gentiles because he's preaching to Jews. It's to anyone whom the Lord our God will call unto himself. That's the divine sovereignty. But from human responsibility, the promise is to those who will repent, to those who will believe, to those who will turn. So, repentance is absolutely essential to true conversion. Now, I think I should say a word about faith right now because it just begs to be addressed. I don't see anything here about faith. I thought salvation was by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. The Philippian jailer comes under deep conviction and he cries out, 
a similar way. What, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Where's the repentance? He didn't need to preach repentance. It was obvious that he was repenting. And when you see people who are repenting, you don't always have to tell them to believe. I do believe that as Peter went on in this sermon, he probably made faith very clear because you'll notice in verse 40 that in a sense he goes back to preaching. He says, you know, you thought I was done. You interrupted my sermon. I'm not really quite done. I have more to say. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Earlier they heard people with the gift of tongues speaking of the mighty works of God. Maybe the doctrine of salvation was being opened up while those people were speaking in tongues. I don't know, but they were speaking of the mighty works of God. And what more mighty work is there than the work of salvation? And when Peter says, repent every one of you and be baptized, he says, in the name of of Jesus Christ. Why be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? I find it impossible to believe that Peter didn't make clear that when you crucified the Savior, that crucifixion was designed by God to pay for the sins of those who would trust him. That's how he redeemed his people. So in the Bible, sometimes you only hear the call of repentance and sometimes you only hear the call of faith. But be sure of this, that these two graces are inseparable and all repentance implies faith. I mean, think about it. Here's a guy who's in the process of repenting. He's overwhelmed with deep conviction of sin and sorrow. And you say, what is wrong with you, man? He says, I am in, and I am in a heap of trouble. With whom? With God. For what? For violating his law repeatedly and willfully. Why do you worry about that? Because he's a God of justice. There's a real hell for people who don't find forgiveness. I've got to turn from my sin. You think that person doesn't have some faith already? Are you kidding me? Repentance has faith in its very essence. But I'm certain that in this, this is just a summary of the sermon. I'm certain that Peter made clear to them that in turning from their sins, they were turned to turn to the one whom they had crucified. And that's where faith comes in. But who are these people who repent and trust and are baptized? I want you to notice once more the end of verse 39. It says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise is for all who experience the calling of God. Now, this calling is not just the invitation. This is what theologians refer to as the effectual call. It's that powerful work of the Holy Spirit who enables a person to feel their sinfulness and to see their desperate need of Christ and to listen to the promise and the encouragement of the gospel and to flee to him in faith. That's what calling is. The writers of the Shorter Catechism raised this question. It's wonderful. I, I would encourage you to memorize it. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby He doth... Let me read it carefully. It is the... Uh, convince us of our sin and misery. 
enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills and so by enabling us to receive Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. That's great. I know that's full, and I know I just gave you a lot to think about, but that's what effectual call, that's what this mighty work of the Holy Spirit is. It's the work of God's Spirit, whereby he convinces us of our sin and misery. Infants cannot be convinced of sin and misery. They cannot understand the gospel. This is the shorter catechism explaining how effectual calling almost normally, almost in all cases works, except the cases of infants who uh, are not able to ever hear the gospel and so forth, who have been chosen by God from all eternity. The normal means, according to the shorter catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, of calling sinners to Christ is through the mind, through the heart, through the will, by the gospel. Why am I saying that? That's how we make disciples. That's how Heritage Baptist Church has to make disciples. God doesn't have any other way. And he's called this church to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to call sinners to faith and repentance. And yes, baptism, which I still haven't touched upon. Knowing that as we preach that gospel, the Holy Spirit of God in his own sovereign way, will bless it and will call unto himself through the enlightening of the mind and the renewing of the will, through the convincing one of sin and misery, and they will be saved. That's how disciples are made. Now, okay, so let's go ahead and talk about baptism for a minute. Now, this this verse has been abused, of course, by uh, Campbellites, People who have followed the teaching of Campbell, uh, who, in a sense, was the founding theologian of the Church of Christ, not trying to bash anybody, just want to bash error. And they believe that baptism causes you to be regenerated. And they say, here it is, it's right there. You can't just repent, you have to be baptized. Is baptism essential to salvation? No. Let me be really clear. Is baptism essential to salvation? No. Let me ask a different question. Is baptism essential to discipleship? Yes. Because you know what a disciple is? A disciple is a person who has come to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and is willing to identify in him in the waters of baptism. Pastor Keith prayed that we may have many more. God willing, two weeks from today, we'll have another baptismal service. Two of our young people are being baptized. And when we put them down in the water, we symbolize death. Jesus died for them. They died with him. When we bring them up, we symbolize resurrection. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. And baptism becomes the the symbolic ordinance that God himself, that our Savior gave to the church to show that he is our master, we are his disciples. So what do we do? We trust him, we get baptized, and we go off and live our independent Christian life, right? No, wrong. We do what Jesus said to do in the Great Commission, which I haven't even mentioned yet. Why are you so hung up on making disciples? It seems like you guys are talking about making disciples all the time. And I've read some stuff on the blogosphere about 
Being missional is the new legalism. Oh, really? So whenever the Word of God comes to us with a clear command, and we take those commands seriously, and we see how far short we're falling in whatever those commands may be, it may be the Lord's Day, it may be the Christian Sabbath. Is that legalism? To own up to our disobedience to the clear commands of God? The sin of omission? No, that's not legalism. I'll tell you what legalism is. Legalism is saying if you do this, you'll find acceptance with God. That's what legalism is. And if we, your pastors, start teaching that the way this church can find acceptance with God and the way you as an individual can find acceptance with God is by being missional, stand up and call us legalists. But if, but if we're trying to say, hey, guess what, guys? Just before Jesus went up to heaven, he said, I just have a little thing for you I want you to remember. This is it. These are my last words to you. All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples. Make disciples. Who said that? Jesus said that. To whom was that commission given? To the church. Who are you? Members of the church. We have to do this corporately, but we're to do it individually within the realm of our own giftedness. And we're not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody. We all have different personalities. We all have different spheres of influence. But we have to find some way, if we can, to help people know what God has done for us and how we can forgive them of their sins. It's not legalistic to try to become a more missional church. It's biblical. Why do we call it the Great Commission? Probably for more than one reason, but one is because it's a great calling from God to the church. And it's a worldwide calling. So we are to make disciples. How do we make them as a church? I hope I'm making some disciples right now. I believe I'm at least doing the thing that Pastor Johnson is going to preach about next week. I'm maturing the disciples right now because we're under the Word of God and you're being equipped to understand the Word of God more thoroughly. But we make disciples by preaching the gospel and calling sinners to faith and repentance and to baptism. And this is what, this is what I want to say. This is the last thing I want to say about baptism. Baptism does not make you a Christian. Baptism makes you a disciple because baptism is your way of identifying with, not only with Christ, identifying not only with Christ, but with his people. And that's why the Great Commission says, I only have three things. Make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe whatsoever I've commanded. How do you teach a church that scatters all over the place with just individual Christianity? You can't. We are to come together in, in local corporate bodies of believers called local churches under the care and love of pastors and under the service of deacons to worship and to observe the ordinances and to be taught and to grow and to mature. That's how we do this thing. And that's why baptism is, is essential in that sense. It's not essential to salvation. It's essential to obedience I would have to say to any, any person here, I don't want you to be hurt by this. I'm not being unkind. I'm just being honest. If you are a professed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and give evidence of it, but you are, listen to me, unwilling, unwilling to be baptized, 
you are a disobedient disciple. And if you remain unwilling to be baptized, week after week, month after month, year after year, you are probably not a true disciple at all. Because a true disciple has the law of God written upon his heart and longs from the deepest inner recesses of his soul to please God and to live in obedience to him. And Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them. So if there's anyone whose conscience, and I don't have anybody in mind right now, if there's anyone whose conscience is, is, is touched by that, please talk to us and let's get you baptized. And that'll be beautiful. And you'll be obedient. And you will symbolize not only your union with Christ, but your union with his people. That's why we watched that little parabolic video this morning. You may have wondered, what's that about? It's just a way to remind us that it's pretty easy to be a false disciple, a false convert. You notice that he was saying one thing with his mouth, but on the screen was reality. We need to be sure that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so I want to leave you with these questions. Have you ever been cut to the heart? Notice verse 32 one more time. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. May I put it like this? You cannot get saved if you've never been cut to the heart. Now, people are cut to the heart in different degrees, and we've got to be careful about setting up one model of overwhelming grief and sorrow and fear and repentance and saying everybody has to match it. I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you this. You'll never go to Jesus if you aren't cut to the heart. For what? Why go to him? Because I'm a sinner. You have to be cut to the heart to some degree, to some extent. Have you ever cried out, Brothers, what shall I do? If you haven't literally cried that out to a pastor or to a husband or a wife or a parent or a friend, you've got to be crying that out in your soul. What am I going to do? The person who says, what shall I do? Can be told, here's what you do. Repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and prove that he is your master from this day forward by identifying with him in baptism. That's what you should do. Dear brothers, dear friends, are you sure that you've come to feel and see yourself to be a sinner? Have you come to see that Christ was crucified for your sins, that he was raised and exalted for you, that he's seated on a throne, that he is both Lord and Christ, that all of his enemies will become his footstool? Have you seen your need of an atonement? Have you seen your need of a perfect righteousness? Have you seen that his salvation is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord? That's what verse 21 says. The, the quote from Joel ends with that wonderful gospel promises. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's my, that's my word of encouragement to you today. If you feel your need of Christ and you know you're in trouble with God and you see that he's the only one that can pay for your sins, all, all you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And that text says you'll be saved. That makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, this is what God has called Heritage Baptist Church to do. We're to do it as a church, 
And in as much as is possible, within the realm of our own giftedness and our own personalities and our own influence and our own experience, we're to do this as individuals. We're to make disciples the old-fashioned way by preaching Christ and calling sinners to faith and repentance. May God give us grace to be such a church. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage and all that we can learn from it. Uh, We want to be an obedient church. We know that the Great Commission is for Heritage Baptist Church. We're not exempt from it. You have called us to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them. and, And we pray that we will do a better job at that as a church. We thank you that um, our duty isn't over when we make disciples. Then we, then we do church and we mature them. And we spend the rest of our lives in the process of maturation. And we seek to multiply disciples and plant new churches. We thank you that you've made these things clear. Please help us as a church to be more faithful to this great commission. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.